Amen. I'm so glad we took our time working through communion. Appreciate Pastor Ray taking the time to explain it and really make us deliberate, think over, ponder, and uh, respond uh, to communion this morning. Uh, if, 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 if we didn't even have the message today, I'd be okay because we took time to really remember our Lord and what he's done for us and we've come before him. Amen? And we've, we've just celebrated. We've just celebrated the life that we have in Christ. And nothing could be better than that. We're in Matthew's Gospel. We've been in this study now for several weeks. And uh, Matthew's Gospel presents to us uh, the King of Israel, Jesus Christ. That's really what Matthew is up to. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. He's trying to, commu- or he's writing to a Jewish audience. He's, he's trying to communicate that Jesus is Messiah. He's trying to help us today, the Gentile world, to understand that we live in the kingdom of God. Those who are saved, those, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you are saved, you are a member of the kingdom of heaven. Amen? I'm not talking about a future physical experience. Yes, that's coming. But I'm talking about right now. The righteousness, the peace, and the joy of God should be in every one of us who are saved. Uh, you say, well, okay, well, when good things happen, um, yeah, the righteousness, peace, and joy comes up, and I feel good about it. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with, with good days, bad days. Every day you live in the kingdom. You are a citizen of the king. Amen? Amen. And so what that means is, and this is going to be hard for some of us to swallow, it's even difficult for me to say it, okay? The reality is, even when bad things happen and we want to turn and even blame God, we should never blame the Lord. We should thank the Lord, even in difficult times. Thank Him that He's doing something, He's working, He's growing our faith, He's strengthening us in who He is and what He can do in our lives. Never should a Christian on any given day ever be in a place where we think God's failed, God let us down, God didn't do, God didn't deliver. What was he thinking? Was he sleeping? What was going on? Hey, listen, he is sovereign. God is in total control. And everything works together for good to those who love him. Amen? So so the kingdom, we belong to this kingdom. And it causes us on this earth to live differently than the people of the world, because the kingdom of God is in us. Give thanks in all things, the Bible says, right? In all things give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So God wants us to always know that he's at work and to be looking for him to work in us. What is he doing in me right now? So as we go through Matthew's gospel, we come to chapter 5, which is the Beatitudes, chapter 5, 6, and 7, of Matthew's gospel is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that Jesus proclaimed. His disciples were sitting near to him as he shared it, but there were crowds of people who gathered and listened in as well. And so just to give you a quick review, those of you who maybe are new for the first time, we do have these little books. I don't know if we have any in the back today, but we have these, we do have them. And they're little study, well, actually, they're just scripture readings from Matthew, the entire scripture And then a journal side, you can write notes, whatever, during the sermon. So feel free to pick one up after the service if you'd like. But in chapter 1, Matthew outlined Jesus' heritage. That as a descendant of Abraham and David, 
Jesus is the heir to the throne of Israel. Okay? That was established. In chapter 2, we saw homage paid the king by the wise men who came from the east to worship him. Also in chapter 2, we saw the hostility of Herod, right? At the news of the king, that the Jewish king was born, he did what? He had all the male children destroyed that were two years or younger. And then we have chapter 3, where we saw John the Baptist herald the king. John was the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist being the last of the prophets. And here he is, he's the forerunner to Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the message of Christ. What was the message of Christ? The same message as John. Repent and be baptized. Okay, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in chapter 4, we saw the king being led by the Spirit into the wilderness where Satan comes at a a time of physical weakness and tempts him. But Jesus was able to resist the temptation, how? By quoting the word of God. He was spirit-led and scripture-fed when he was in a difficult place. You and I should every day, because this world's a difficult place to live in, every day we should be spirit-led and scripture-fed. Okay, And so we also saw in chapter 4, the establishing of the headquarters of the king as Jesus taught and he healed throughout Galilee. That's the northern region, and that's uh, Capernaum was really his, his outpost. That's where most and many of the miracles took place that he performed in that region. So we now see where Jesus is going to spend the next three years of ministry. Well, now it begins. The ministry begins. Jesus is being led by the Spirit. He is in constant communion with the Father. And he's also, uh, obviously he is the Word of God. So the things coming out of his mouth are God's words. Everything he says is important to us. And so let's go ahead, if we can, and let's pick up at verse 1. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and the first 12 verses are what we call the Beatitudes. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and let's just stop there for a second, as these multitudes began to hear of Jesus, the last verse in chapter 4 says, they came from 100 miles or more to be with him. Think about that. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, climbed a hill, sat down, and prepared to teach. In Jewish culture, if you were preaching, you would stand. But if you were teaching and explaining, you would sit. And this is why today, uh, in the university setting, a teacher will oftentimes have the chair, and they'll sit, and they'll teach, okay? Okay. So, so it's interesting here that Jesus is seated, ready to give this authoritative teaching. What he's about to say is extremely important. This is the first ministry experience of Christ in his ministry. So whatever he's going to say is going to be extremely important. And so he gives this teaching. Here it is, verse 3. Blessed. Blessed. The first word in his teaching, blessed. Blessed. Verse 3 introduces a well-known portion of Scripture, okay? Literally, that word blessed in the Latin means happy. The first word in the ministry of Jesus is 
happy. Some people think Jesus is boring and Jesus is somebody who, you know, he's a down and outer, you know, he's always always pushing scripture. And hey, his first word was happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says that the first step to happiness is to be self assertive, you know, you be in control, have confidence esteem yourself. If you have a low self-esteem, oh, you're in serious trouble. All these things that the world teaches us. You've got to feel good about yourself. You've got to go into the room and you've got to command the room. You've got to feel like you know what you're doing. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus actually says the opposite of that. Now listen, he's teaching his disciples, the crowds listening in, He's letting all of them know what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. When you live in the kingdom of God, there are internal attitudes that will help you to experience being blessed, help you experience happiness. And so here he's laying it out. Blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. What is that speaking of? Those who realize their own spiritual poverty. When it says poor in spirit, it's you recognizing that you are, sport, you are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ in his work in your life. Anyone who truly sees the Lord will inevitably feel poor in spirit. If you truly know who Jesus is, you know that he is the son of God. You know that he was with God in the beginning and created all things and all things are held together by him and in him. Listen, when you know Jesus that way, then you also know you don't measure up. You know that you are lost in sin. You know that apart from his work on the cross for your sin, you are done for eternity. You're going to be destroyed. But see, this is a great word here. It's it's something for us to think about. In the first five chapters of his book, Isaiah indicts the people of Judah and the surrounding nations saying, woe are you, and woe are you, and woe are you. He keeps calling out this oracle of woe. But in chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah, this prophet of God who's going around, woe are you, woe unto you. All of a sudden in chapter 6, he sees the Lord And he says, woe unto me. And immediately he confesses his sin. I'm a man, I have unclean lips. And I live among a people who are unclean. He immediately, when seeing the Lord, knowing the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God, immediately he's drawn back to how he's nothing like God. And for us, God, Jesus is saying, happy are you, blessed are you when you come to the place where you see that against God you are poor in spirit. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing. When Peter realized who Jesus was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. That's found in Luke 5, 8. When John the Revelator Uh, saw Jesus, he fell down as though he were dead. These are the responses of people who come into the presence of Jesus, the strength, the presence, the power of Jesus. 
There's nothing you can do. You begin to crumble. Isaiah actually said, I'm undone. I'm literally disintegrating here in the presence of Jesus. That is the attitude that we should all have when we approach God. In prayer, we, yes, he's our friend. Yes, we have relationship. Thank God for that. The grace of God goes far for us, right? Farther than we can ever imagine. At the same time, he doesn't reduce his justice and his holiness in our presence. We always see him for who he is. And as we see him for who he is, it reveals who we are apart from him. And so it calls us to this poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. That's what we are. We're poor in spirit, each one of us. And then verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This verse is often misinterpreted to mean that Jesus is referring to people who are grieving a loss. Yeah, see, if, you, if you're mourning the loss, then Jesus will, will come and comfort you. It does include that. I mean, that, and there's no question. Jesus said, come to me if you are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. So there's that element, but that's not what this verse is talking about. He's referring, he's speaking of a person who mourns over their sinfulness. It falls in line with, verse, with the first uh, uh, beatitude. That when you come to realize that you're poor in spirit, I am nothing apart from Christ. Because I'm, God is holy, I'm sinful. God is righteous, I'm wicked. The Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things, who can know it? Now, all of a sudden, Jesus comes and says, blessed are the, those who mourn over the fact that they're lost without me. That their sins have overtaken them and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't change the outcome of their own life. There's not enough, listen, there's not enough good things you can do to merit God's, God's response. Not until we surrender our lives. And so when a person mourns over their sins, they express what the Bible calls godly sorrow. When you truly have sorrow over your sins, it just aches your heart to think of the sinfulness in your life. Godly sorrow produces something. It produces repentance, the Bible says. That leads to salvation without regret. Let me explain repentance for you. Repentance oftentimes is illustrated as somebody who's turning and going another direction. That's the second part of repentance. That doesn't start with that. It doesn't start with you turning away from sin and following God. It starts with you having a change of mind. You think differently. I once was lost and I'm fully aware of my state of lostness. I realize the life I was living. I realize the, how far I was from God. I realize that there was no hope for me in eternity whatsoever. And not a, there's not enough good things I can do. Attending church, going through rituals, trying to appease God. Nothing will get me right with God. That's, that's an, an understanding you come to. And then you begin to think differently. But God... In his love for me, a wretched sinner sent his son to die on the cross. God loved me when I was unlovable. 
And all of a sudden, you think differently. You think differently. When you're in sin, man, it's like, woo, this is fun. I'm having a great time. This is cool. This is good, man. It tastes great. Yeah, it does. And it sours in your stomach. And all of a sudden, I think differently. Man, I realize now that all that fun, it had a kickback to it. And I'm suffering because of the fallout of my sinfulness. You're thinking differently. The best illustration in the Bible of repentance, I think one of the best, is uh, the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son who goes and sows his oats. Why? Because he felt his dad was an old fuddy-duddy. What does he know? Just give me my inheritance. Let me live life the way I want to live it. And I'm smarter than you. You know, you're sitting here on the farm and you're doing the same thing every day. Man, I want to see the world. Just give me the money and let me go live my life. And the father, of course, allows him to take his inheritance and he goes and he spends every dime of it. And now he has nothing. And all the people that hung out with him while he had money are gone. And he finds himself working in a pig pen. And he's hungry as he can possibly be, and he decides, maybe I can just eat these pods the pigs, pigs are eating. And he's starting to eat pig food, slop, laying there in the mud. And then the Bible says this, he came to his senses. He began to think differently. And he began to realize that he has a father who was much wiser than he ever thought he was. He begins to see the air of his ways, and he sees the goodness of his father back home. And now he's thinking, I want to go home. I want to go home, even if it means I serve as a servant and live in the servant's quarter and eat the servant's food. That's a better life than this. I'll do whatever I have to do to get out of this mess. That's repentance. That's thinking differently. Then what did he do? He climbed out of the pig pen and he went home. He turned and went a different direction. And this is what we're talking about. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize I'm in a state of sin and the only way out is through repentance. And if I repent, truly repent, I experience salvation without regret. What does that mean? It means that you know that the work of Christ covers every single sin that you've been mourning over. That there's nothing past, present, or even in the future that Christ does not cover for you. You realize that now you have been saved from that. And guess what? Never again do I have to walk around thinking about my past life, regretting the life that I used to live. I don't need to regret it anymore. In fact, now God will use even the things out of that life. He's going to use them to help me to minister to other people. We comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves receive from the Lord. Amen? And so it's, it's repentance will lead to salvation without regret. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, that's the passage I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, regret, whereas, listen to this, worldly grief produces death. Let's explain that. The difference between godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, is, is one is the work of God, the other is the work of man. 
When you come before God as a repentant sinner, you are laid bare before him, and he comforts you by forgiving and saving you. Therefore, you have no regrets. However, when a sinner, when a sinner who only feels human sorrow, and we say, well, what does that mean? It means that he's sorry he got caught. Man, I just hate that that happened. Oh, are you sorry that you sinned? No, I hate that, it found, that people found out. That's going to change my life now. People are going to look at me differently. He's not sorry for his sinfulness. He's sorry for how it impacts him on this, in this world. That's a human sorrow. It's not a godly sorrow. And so what that man does is he now lives his life with regrets because now he's always thinking about the fact that he got caught and how it changed his life. Man, I had things going really well. I was living my life the way I wanted. And then somehow somebody got word and they told the news. And now, man, my whole life has fallen up. He's, he's sorry over the fact that he got caught. And he's regretting that he got caught. And you know what that leads you to? Destruction. Because you live the rest of your life in guilt and shame. And you can't fix it. When a Christian comes to Christ with guilt and shame, and we repent... Christ fixes that. We no longer live in guilt and shame. Isn't that wonderful? Let's, let's look again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comfort that he speaks of is the forgiveness and salvation that a repentant sinner experiences when they experience godly sorrow. When you realize that you're a sinner and you mourn over your sin, the Lord comes to you and says, I don't condemn you. Go a different way. Stop sinning. Stop doing that. See, that's, there's a difference here. That's what the woman caught in the act of adultery heard. What, what about the prostitute who fell at Jesus' feet and she's weeping? And you hear Jesus saying, leave her alone. Because those who are forgiven much love much. When we reach a state of poverty in our spirit and we mourn over our sinfulness, we will be comforted in the kingdom of God. And not just in the future, but now. You can experience comfort. How about the fifth number, verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. We've heard that for years, right? And that's true. Meekness is strength under control. The Greek word for meek is a term used to describe a powerful stallion or a, this, this steed that's been broken, and now he's ready to be ridden. That's what God's looking for in his kingdom. He's looking for royal subjects, you and I, who, who now have been broken, and now God can use us. We're useful to the king. That's what he wants. Moses was known for his meekness. Did Moses have to experience brokenness before God could use him? You bet. Numbers 12.3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Jesus in the flesh was also a meek man. In Matthew 11.27, I'm going to read this. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 11. Let's look at verse 27. We'll read two or three, four verses here. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. Here Jesus is speaking to one of the crowds that followed him. 
And he says these words, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you get a sense of Jesus' authority in that? Let me start it again here. All things have been handed over to me. All things. You think he had authority? You think he had power? You, You think he had control? You better believe it. Yet, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, in the KJV, meek. Here, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As a person becomes poor in spirit, do you understand? You see how these are building on each other, these beatitudes? As you're poor in spirit, you begin to mourn over your sinfulness. Then you find yourself clothed in meekness. See, the fact that you came to the end of yourself, your sin nature, your sin life, and your sorrow, there's sorrow over that, there's a brokenness that takes place in you. You're not the same person now. Now as a believer in the kingdom of God, you think differently. Now there's this meekness, this gentleness that comes to you. Again, meekness isn't weakness. It's strength under control of the Holy Spirit. Now God's brought you through a process so that he can use you. You're like a tool in his hand. That is the goal of our life as Christians, is to bring glory to the Father. Could there be a higher higher value, a higher goal for a Christian than to bring glory to God? And so by being used of Him in whatever way, shape, or form, and by the way, every day you're being used of God, whether you know it or not. And and some of us are failing miserably. (laughs) God's like, no, you should be broken by now. You should be walking in meekness by now because you've gone through repentance, or maybe you haven't, and maybe that's why you're still in control. Maybe that's why your strength is uncontrollable. There is no meekness. No wonder people aren't seeing Christ in you. No wonder you're not being used of God. You've skipped over a step here. You need to go back, and you need to do the first works over again. Repent of your sin. Repent. Get rid of the pride Let God break you so he can use you. Look, even when you face a trial, my children have said to me on several occasions, and and when I say children, I mean my my in-law children as well. Um, The the way we handled when I left the last church that I was at, uh, it was sudden, it was uh, unexpected, and they watched me closely. And they said, the way you handled that, uh, really, uh, God used that to minister to them. Because I wasn't looking for revenge. I wasn't looking to be proven right and everybody else be proven wrong. Uh, I looked inward. Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you up to in this? What are you trying to do through this? And that's a witness. I wasn't even trying to impact others. I'm just trying to figure out for myself and make sure that I'm right with him. And the Lord used it. 
See, even when you go through bad, horrific, terrible, sorrowful situations, God's using you. Stop running from trials. Stop running from trouble. God's using you. A prideful person runs from trials. A prideful person doesn't think they deserve to be where they are. They don't think they deserve that that should have happened, and therefore, what do those people know? And I'm going to get this thing straightened out, and I'm going to... No, no. Meekness. That's the result. That's the fruit of repentance. That now you're a different person. Now you're under control of God. Now God uses you even in the difficult times. I'm convinced that the reason many people are not satisfied is because they have not been emptied of themselves. And that really leads us into the next beatitude. Look at verse 6, if you will. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Pay close attention to the order of these internal attitudes. First, you're poor in spirit because you're mourning over your sin. Then you find yourself meek. Then the self-grandeur, the self-glory, it all falls off of you like clothes. And now all of a sudden you take on this poor in spirit. Now you find yourself in this position of being poor in spirit. You find yourself hungry and thirsting for righteousness. You want to be closer and closer to God. I'm convinced that that's what's been missing in a lot of Christians is they're not empty of themselves. And therefore, because we're still full of ourselves, we can't experience the kingdom of heaven the way God wants us to. Scripture teaches that pride must go before a person truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Otherwise, you become like a Pharisee. You, you develop your own righteousness. No, when you truly are poor in spirit, when you truly mourn over your sin... Believe me, once God has control of you that way, I'm telling you right now, you hunger for him because you know he's your only hope. But if you still think you've got something to offer and you don't need God, the last thing you'll want is righteousness and hunger for, uh, or you want uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. If, if Rini prepares, and she's sitting right here, if she prepares a wonderful meal for us to enjoy uh, after work, and, and on the way home, I just happened to drive by five guys. And I go in, and I have one of those delicious, juicy cheeseburgers with the Cajun-style fries. And I come walking in the door where there is a beautiful, balanced meal waiting for me. I'm not really hungry. I'm not going to eat it. Why? Because I filled myself up on foods that are not good for me. Does that not resonate with you? That we get so filled up in this world with all the other stuff, no wonder we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. You say, well, how do I, how do I fix that? How do I? Well, you don't fix anything. You just need to go back and surrender these things to Christ that are keeping you from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You say, what does that look like? Put some definition on that. You hunger and thirst to be in the fellowship of other believers, 
who can challenge you and grow you. You're willing to be held accountable. You hunger and thirst for the word of God. You are willing to come into a time of Bible reading, Bible study. You hunger and thirst for righteousness in that you long to start your day in prayer with God. Giving over your day. Again, I've been bridled. I used to be a wild stallion doing it my way, but no longer. Now I begin my day because I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, I ask the Lord, how do you want to use me today? You got to go back. This whole thing is about going back to poor in spirit. And as you're poor in spirit, you realize I'm nothing. And then you realize that God can help you as you mourn over your sinfulness. And God pours meekness into you. And he breaks you of yourself. And now all of a sudden, you're in a different place than you used to be. This is why so many Christians have lost their appetite for the word of God. This is why they no longer desire to truly worship God. This is why they no longer crave righteousness, because they're not walking in meekness before the Lord. They aren't mourning over their sins. They've lost that poor in spirit condition. Rather than being poor in spirit, they're rich in pleasure and possessions. That's not a picture of a citizen of heaven. I'm not saying that you can't have possessions. God blesses us with possessions. Okay, I'm not saying you can't have these things. I'm just saying that you never, even with the things that God's blessed you with, you never leave this internal attitude of poverty of spirit that I am lost apart from God. I desire God. I need God. I'm hungering and thirsting for God every day. When you lose that, those other things replace it. Don't lose it. Keep those things in their rightful place in your life. Oh, that God would awaken us from our slumber, church. That we would get excited again about the things that matter to him. That we would see souls that we are around every day. And we would see them as people who can come into the kingdom of God. If only someone will invite them. Open my mouth, Lord. Let me speak to that person. Let me be a blessing to them. I remember one time I was going on a, one of the work camps down in Honduras, and so I got on Taka Airlines, you know, to fly down to Tegucigalpa, the capital city. And on that flight, I was like on the third from the last row, you know, on this plane. And it is jam-packed with people. And uh, so I'm back there, and then the, the, the uh, flight attendant announces that, hey, I've got a mom, uh, an older woman, and her daughter who are traveling together they would really like to sit together. So I just jumped up. I said, hey, they can, there's, because there was an empty seat next to me. They can have these two. And she said, thank you. And so I thought, okay, where's she going to put me? And I'm looking around, you know, and it's like jammed. And she goes, you come with me. And so this is back a few years ago. They took me up to first class. <laughs> Chairs are like this. <laughs> And I go up there, there's an empty one, and she says, have a seat. I said, thank you. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I just thought that was the whole purpose of the event, was me doing something nice for someone, and the Lord blessed me for that. So I thought, oh, man, that was awesome. I sit down, and a gentleman sitting next to me, his name is Hector. Hector is a professor at the university in Tegucigalpa. 
He's probably about 40 years old. I just pull my Bible out and I'm reading and he, he looks over and he says, hey, is that a Bible? And I said, yes, it is. He said, uh, um, you know, when I was a college student, I remember there were people who would walk on campus and, and they would hand out little pieces of paper about uh, uh, the gospel. And I've never taken time to understand or to read those, those pieces of paper. What Can you tell me what it means to be a Christian? So for the whole flight, I just take the Bible and I just share the gospel with Hector. And Hector gave his heart to Jesus Christ on that flight. It was the most incredible. I get chills even now. I thank God for that, what God can do. See, we need to get up in the morning. And, and don't think, there's been so many Hector stories, and they're there for your life. But you rise in the morning, pour in spirit, this spirit of mourning over your past sin, and then let it, once God heals you, now let it go. You're no longer having to continue to mourn over past sins, right? But now I'm going to live out of this meekness that I'm now under the control of the Holy Spirit. Each day I rise and I ask the Lord, because I hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, what do we have on the agenda today? Who's it going to be today? This is how the Lord expects his subjects to live in his kingdom on this earth. He goes further, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. After you've gone through the emptying process and you're filled with God's forgiveness, mercy, and love, guess what happens? You want to show the same forgiveness, mercy, and love to others. People who have truly experienced the mercy of God desire showing mercy to others. I never found that more crystal clear than after the experience I had uh, uh, three years ago. And, and praying, uh, first of all, I needed God's mercy. And I found myself desiring to pray as I would learn of other situations and people, praying that God would show them mercy. That's, that's just natural. A, a person who's been loved and forgiven is a person who naturally desires in the spirit to show love and forgiveness to others. So you've got to backtrack that and think of it the other way. So when's the last time I've shown mercy or love or forgiveness to somebody? If it's been a while that you've really functioned out of love, mercy, and forgiveness, could it be that you've forgotten the love and the forgiveness and the mercy that the Lord has shown you? And again, it's an easy fix. It's the Lord's work. You just surrender. Lord, forgive me. Again, my pride has risen up in me. And boy, that thing's going to show its ugly head every day that you live. Isn't that true? You just got to kick it in the face. Tell it to sit down and shut up. Flesh is not going to rule me. I'm going to be led by the Spirit of God. I hunger for God more than I hunger for the things of this world. The more broken a man is or a woman, the more merciful they will be. The more sinful a person is, the more unmerciful they will be. Instead, what they are is hard, critical, and coldly analytical. We can all get there, can't we? 
verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a difference between having a clean heart and a pure heart. There's a difference. All of us have embraced, who have embraced the Lord, we all have clean hearts. Praise God. Some of you don't think you do. If, you, if you're saved, you have a clean heart. In fact, when the Father looks, He sees the righteousness of Jesus covering you. It's kind of like that's what justification is. God now looks at you after salvation, when Christ's righteousness has covered you, God looks at you and it's just as if you never sinned. What a deal. What did I bring to the table that God would treat me as if I never sinned? Nothing. I just showed up and recognized I'm lost. And I surrendered to his love, to his mercy, to his leadership, his lordship. Awesome. But when you're pure in heart, you will see God. Did you know that not all soaps are pure soap? In fact, most soaps have all kinds of other ingredients built into them. There is one soap that's 99.44% pure soap. It's ivory soap. No perfumes, no additives, no colorings, just soap. It's possible to be clean and not be pure. All soaps will clean you, not all soaps are pure. When was the last time you sensed a closeness to God? When was the last time you just relished in prayer before Him, in Bible study? To just sit with Him, go to the park and just sit and look at what He's created and give thanks to Him? When was the last time? Is it possible that the reason you don't sense that close relationship, that you don't spend time with Him, is it possible that it's because you're no longer pure in heart? You've allowed too many additives to get into your life, into your heart? It's very possible that your spiritual life has been hindered by all kinds of bad things. You're still saved, you're clean, but you're not pure. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. So we need to get back to that. Get back to a life that pleases the Lord. If you know right now that there's things in your life that do not please the Lord, this is a good time to break fellowship with them. To remove those things from your life. If it's hindering you from loving God and living for God, get rid of it. It's not worth it. The next one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean you've joined a world peace organization or you run around humming, we are the world, okay? It has nothing to do with that stuff. It's not about joining causes or walking in a, you know, a peaceful protest. True peacemaking will cost you a whole lot more than that. To be a peacemaker, listen, you have to engage in the peacekeeper, Jesus. And to be a peacemaker is one who goes out and engages other people and brings them 
to the Prince of Peace. A peacemaker is someone who takes people to Jesus. Is there really any other lasting happiness on the planet than knowing Jesus? Think about the day you got saved, the greatest day of your life. Well, then if that's true, it's also true that there's no greater joy than experiencing someone that you spoke to about the Lord receiving Christ, knowing that they got saved. You see how that works? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who will go around and communicate that he is the peace they've been looking for and missing. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. At this point in the message, you're probably thinking, if a person possesses these inner attitudes of the kingdom, he's aware of his spiritual poverty, he mourns over his sin, he walks in meekness, he hungers and thirsts after righteousness, he desires a pure heart, he shows mercy to others, surely he's going to be well-liked in this world. (laughs) Well, if you belong to the kingdom of God, the opposite is true. If you exhibit all those things, yes, you will have an impact on those who Christ is drawing. But there's a lot who have resisted Christ, rebelled against Christ. The last thing they want is somebody who acts like Christ. The last person they want to hear about is Jesus Christ as Lord. And here you are sharing truth lovingly, caring for people, expressing that God loves them. It doesn't win you brownie points, believe me. You will face persecution. If a person possesses these inner attitudes of the kingdom, you will be persecuted. It goes with the territory. Okay? 2 Timothy 3.12. Write it down. 2 Timothy 3.12-13. 2 Timothy 3.12-13. Listen Listen to what Timothy said. Or Paul said to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire... To live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You are not going to save a single person in your entire lifetime. What you are going to do is what we're going to talk about next week. You're going to be salt and light. And by being salt and light, God, the Holy Spirit, will convict them of their sin and bring them to salvation. But you're just the instrument in God's hands. And as an instrument in God's hands, believe me, there's times where you're going to take the brunt of the world's hate towards God. The Bible says that the world is at enmity with God. You, before you were saved, were at enmity with God. But not anymore. Now you're an instrument of God. And as an instrument of God, you're going to take on the very enmity that people show God. So just get used to it. In fact, Jesus said, happy are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Happy are you. Why? How is that happy? Because you know that you just gave that person the opportunity to choose Christ. Whether they do or not, who knows? 
But you presented it. You presented it. If you had kept your mouth shut in order not to be persecuted, you would have also kept that person from hearing the gospel. When you love people, you share Christ. You just do. Regardless of the fallout. When a person that you love, when you hold back and not share the gospel with them, what's happening there, you say, well, I love them and I don't want them to, I don't want our relationship to suffer. If I share Christ, then we'll probably, they might never want to be my friend again. I love them too much to do that. You're not loving them. You're being very selfish in your love because they're going to die and go to hell. That's not what a real friend does. A real friend tells the truth to their friend, especially when eternity hangs in the balance. You want to be honest and truthful. It's like the story I heard of a couple who lived next to another neighbor, and this couple were Christians, but they never shared the gospel. They would go have meals together. They would hang out together at the ball games. They did a lot of things together as couples, but they never shared Christ. Until one time, uh, years later, this other couple comes to their home late one night. We've just got to tell you, we just gave our hearts to Jesus Christ. We just got saved. And the couple that's saved said, What? That's awesome. We're Christians too. And they looked at the couple, What? You know the Lord? Yeah, we've known the Lord for years. You've known, but you've never shared with us? You were willing to go to ball games and eat together and be friends, but you were willing to let us die and go to hell? It puts a whole different perspective on the responsibility to be persecuted. To be persecuted is a blessing because you're not leaving that person out. You've done your job. You're a tool. God's going to use that. You were willing to share, even if it meant the person getting angry and walking away. Let's be faithful to God more than faithful to man. And by being faithful to God, we will be faithful to man. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time this morning, these Beatitudes give us much to think about, much to think about. Lord, it's just beautiful how in the kingdom you have given us really this, this recipe. It's, it's, it's like one builds on the other. It starts with being poor in spirit, recognizing our sinfulness. It moves into mourning over our sins, that we actually grieve that we're sinners and we repent and we turn and we follow you. And then all of a sudden this meekness shows up that gives us this strength that is under control of the Holy Spirit. And now we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. And you comfort us as we mourn over our sins. Oh, it's just a beautiful picture, Lord. And it all brings us to a point of growth and development where now we're, we're willing to be a tool in your hand and to speak the truth in love to people and share the good news of the gospel regardless of the fallout. 
Oh God, this morning in this place, make us, Bureau Bible Fellowship, make us tools in your hand. Let us hunger and thirst for you to the point that we allow you to do whatever you need to do in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that we know no matter what we're going through, you are there. And you're using it. You care about us. So may people today find comfort in that way as well. We give you all the praise and the glory and the honor. Amen. Amen. I want to close differently this morning. We're going to invite uh, some elders and prayer partners just to come and stand up front. Bill, he's already ready, man. He, Burly Bill will minister to you. Wild Bill. We call him Wild Bill. Uh, they're, they're going to be here. If you would like to pray with someone about any matter in your life, forget about the message for just a second. Just the fact that you're going through whatever you're facing and you need someone to agree with you in prayer. That's what these folks are for, okay? They're here to pray with you, all right? And, uh, and as you rise today and as we uh, make our way out, let's remember that, that we are a church family. And, and with that comes a responsibility that we are in covenant with one another to uphold the Word of God. That doesn't mean that we just believe it. It means that we live it. And as we go out of here, let's leave knowing I'm not alone in hearing this message from the Word. And, and just as God is convicting me in a very specific, personal way, He's doing the same to others. Support one another. Strengthen one another as you leave today. Be an encourager of others. Right now in this world, especially right now, it is hard to make it from day to day. Things happening all around us all the time. We need to be supportive of each other. We need to encourage each other as we go with the Lord in this life. Amen? Now let me close one more time in prayer because I want to pray specifically for our president, his wife, and those in his cabinet that have COVID. Father, we just lift up, we look beyond ourselves to people all over the country and all over the world that are suffering with COVID. We do ask, Lord, that even this 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 sickness, this disease, that, Lord, it would draw people to you. Use it for your glory, Father. And, Lord, we lift up our president, his wife, the first lady, and his cabinet, those around him. We pray for their protection. We pray that, Lord, they would recover from this. But I also pray that you would use it to soften and to do a work in every single person especially politicians. Lord, those who, it's just so easy to, to, to give out commands, but Lord, sometimes we get so full of ourselves. We understand that quite well. So Lord, I pray that you would just minister to those uh, in our government, minister to those in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, uh, the, as you heard, the next two weeks, Thursday night, this Thursday, next Thursday, and it's not going to be the same teaching each night. I thought it was. I got that wrong, Paul. Forgive me. Uh, it's a continual teaching. So you want to attend this Thursday night, 630, at the plaza off of 17th Street. That's just east of the Strunk Funeral Home. And you want to be there. You want to experience uh, this teaching that Paul Westcott's going to give on 
what it means to vote biblically and looking at different issues in constitution, even in a state constitution, some of the things that are being offered in the, in the ballot this year and how as a Christian we should approach things. So Paul's going to be covering these things. And then the week after that, which is three weeks away on a Thursday night, 6.30, and that's a week before the election, the following Tuesday, we are going to have at the plaza a sacred assembly. We're going to gather together there's not going to be worship. There's not going to be preaching. There's going to be prayer. A, an intensified, strategic time of prayer. And it won't just be a person standing in front of people praying. It's going to be, the, we have tables there, circle, you know, round tables. We'll circle up at our table. We'll be praying strategically over things. Not just election, even way beyond election. The, the, just the fact that our nation is so far adrift from God. We've got much to pray over. So the next three Thursdays, the next two, voting biblically. The third Thursday, a sacred assembly. Okay? So don't think just weekend service. Think about during the week <clears throat> attending these things. It'll strengthen you in your spirit. It'll give you a greater confidence in the voting booth. And it will also, it'll remind us of our call in this world to help people. Amen. All right. God bless you. Thank you for being here.